0: All right, good morning, guys. Uh, Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and we are starting a new sermon series today called Consecrated. I'll be explaining a little bit more of that as we dig in, Um, but let's go ahead and jump into our scripture. We're going to be going to Joshua chapter 3 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Joshua 3. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the floor around you, and in our Bibles, we're going to be going over to page 179 toward the beginning of the book this morning, <clears throat> Joshua chapter 3. I want to give you a little bit of background so that'll help you engage as we read the Word of God. Um, this is a, a piece of a narrative. Um, uh, Joshua's is has the, the nation of Israel on the banks of the Jordan. And uh, previously, um, uh, Israel had been delivered out of Egypt by Moses and Aaron and uh, led across the Red Sea and brought to Mount Sinai where they were given the law, and and then they had already come to the banks of the Jordan previously. They sent in spies. The spies came back and said, hey, there's giants in the land. Uh, They all got a little freaked out and a little fearful, and their unbelief kind of came out. And as a result, God let them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died off. And now we have that next generation coming back to the banks of the Jordan, being led now by Joshua. And so that's the setting for what we're going to be reading in Joshua 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to be reading down through verse 13. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests... Then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people." So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, When you come to the brink of the waters of Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will drive and that he will, without fail, drive out um, from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of their feet, <clears throat> of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. The word of the Lord. All right, in just three short weeks from today, we will be meeting in our new building. Yeah, it's actually, I know I've said, but this is actually happening. So three weeks from today, if you come here, you'll be alone, okay? Uh, We will be in our new building. We have worked hard. We have waited patiently um, for this day. Almost three years ago, I stood up here on this stage, and um, I started our our capital campaign, called it Rooted and and Growing. Um, We didn't have a building but I stood up here and, and said, hey, it's time for us to get ready. That's what I think God's telling us, right? I think God's telling us it's, it's time to get ready. I was calling us to give money, but I was calling us to a lot more than that. I was calling us to jump into the flow of, of God's generous grace, right? I was calling us to get freed from greed uh, to gratitude and then from grateful hearts to be freed into generosity, and in a beautiful way, we responded. Our little two-and-a-half-year-old church committed to giving well over $600,000 over three years. As people moved away over those three years and pledges got adjusted and some new people came in, um, we were able to, in the end, end up with a pledged amount of $643,000. Today, we have collected $549,000. We've collected 85% of our pledged amount. We are 85% through our capital campaign. We are right on track. And that's pretty amazing. Most experts tell you that you will only collect 80% of the pledged amount. We are on track to, to pledge 100% and potentially more. I love that. Those of you who have already um, completed your pledges, thank you. Because I know many of you take, took real steps of faith and committed amounts that were um, really sacrificial. Um, but, but God moved, and, and you wanted to be part of what God was moving in, and, and I want to thank you for that. Some of you have been giving, and, and you, you still have the rest of your pledge to complete, and I want to encourage you to finish what you started, to, to complete what you've pledged. We have a lot of things going on at the building. The walls are all up um the 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 structure is built but now comes the point of of basically um equipping it for the ministry so furnishing it and all these other things and and your gift at this point is still just as vital and so i want to encourage you um to finish your pledge and uh continue to partner with us in this here's the thing you guys we stepped out in faith and god proved himself faithful and when the opportunity came we were ready. This was not the building anybody had on their radar, right? The lodge was not up for sale and nobody was even talking about it. But when the conversation came, when God opened the door, we were ready. On September 11th, we're going to have a huge celebration, you guys. September 11th is the first Sunday after Labor Day. We're going to be putting out a, a, a big invite. And if you're going to invite anyone, Um, I'm going to encourage you to invite them to the September 11th launch. Uh, August 21st, we'll be in the new building. And we're obviously not going to turn away any newcomers. Um, But we have a couple weeks there where we need to figure out how things work. (laughs) We need to figure out the flow of people, and we need to make sure our systems work. And and so we're really channeling people to that September 11th. And so if you're going to be inviting your friends and your neighbors, which we encourage you to do, invite them then. We're going to make it a huge party. We're going to have a cookout. Uh, We're going to have bounce houses for the kids. Um, We're inviting our friends and our our neighbors. Uh, We're really planning to make a party out of this. We're going to be launching a new sermon series uh, on that Sunday um, called Unshakable, and we're going to be speaking directly into the anxiety that is gripping the heart of our culture. We're going to be talking about how the gospel frees us from fear and into confidence and what it means to be citizens of the new kingdom. Uh, I think it's going to speak powerfully. Uh, into our culture and into our time. And so that's September 11th. encourage you to uh, mark it on your calendars, invite um, others. This will end up being the first sermon series in that new building of what I hope will be many, many, many sermon series. Uh, Just thinking about people will be preaching the word of God in that building after we're dead and gone. All right, not a pleasant thought, but actually it is, right? That we're actually doing something that's going to outlive us. We're investing in something that's going to be impacting this community long after we're gone. That's a beautiful thing. And so um, three years ago, I stood up here and I asked you to step out in trust and in faith. I asked you to get ready, and we did. This morning, I want to call you again to get ready. We have a new building, and it's time for consecration. Now, we've owned this building for just over a year. I've personally walked through it. I don't even know how many times. Um, I've been trying to get over there two to three times a week because I'm a little bit addicted to the change. Like, I want to see every little change in the building as it's happening. Um, but as I'm walking through, I'm praying that's what I do, man. Contractors are, make a little joke of it. It's like, oh, here's Steve again, right? Because I'm it's like the, the obsessive homeowner that's always checking up on their work. But um, really what I'm doing, I'm just praying. I walk through the space and I pray that God will set that space aside for his glory. We've had groups in there praying. We've had organized prayer meetings over there, praying over the space, over the people working in that space, over the future people who will occupy and worship in that space. We've been asking God to consecrate that space. So we keep using that word consecrate. What does it mean? Well, I asked all knowing Google, and this is what Google told me. It says consecration is the solemn dedication to a special purpose or service, usually religious. The word consecration literally means associated with the sacred. So I've walked through in this building, I've walked through the kids' space Praying that it would be consecrated, set apart for a sacred use, that that the children would, would be taught the Word of God, that they would hear about the love of God, that their hearts would be encouraged and warmed by their Heavenly Father who paid a price to, to love them and to save them. I prayed for the kids' workers that will be in that space. I've walked through our student ministry space praying for our, our middle school students and our high school students that are making such critical choices and coming through such critical formulations in their life as they, they start identifying who they are outside of the family unit and, and how we can walk alongside them in that transition in that time, um, reinforcing the love of God and talking about a God who, who uh, has a plan for them. I've prayed for for the, uh, the nursing mother's room. As, as I've walked through there, all the babies we've had and all the moms, and, and I've prayed for them. And I've prayed for, for all the moms and, and families in our church that struggle with infertility. And I, I've prayed for, for um, all the moms that are struggling with all the complexities of motherhood. I've walked through the counseling space, praying for those who would come to hear about how the gospel speaks directly into their pain. I've walked through the the gathering space where we will gather to sing worship and to, to listen to the Word of God opened and taught. And I've prayed for those times of singing and I have prayed for those sermons and for the Word of God to go forward in that space. Here's the thing. We have been pleading with God that He would consecrate that space for the work of the gospel. That the love of God would be unleashed from that place in a powerful way that would impact our hearts and the hearts of this entire community. And so it's important for us to pray for the consecration of the building. I think that's good, but it's even more important that we pray that God would consecrate us. The true church, the temple of the living God. We know the building is the place we gather. We know the building is like a a foothold, a strategic foothold from which we can operate and do ministry. But the church are the called out people of God. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the living God. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are part of this holy company. And I believe we should be seeking to consecrate the true and living church, us. In our passage this morning, Joshua commanded the people of God to consecrate themselves. He he said this in Joshua 3.5, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua was ready to lead the Israelites into the promised land after they had wandered in the desert for 40 years. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a Hebrew way of describing that it's a land where life can be lived to its fullest. Milk and honey were seen as the sweetness of life. They were nourishing, they were strengthening, but they were also luxurious and, and, and comforting, right? When it talks about a land flowing with milk and honey, it's an image of life and all of its fullness. It's an image of, of life and its joy. Life lived fully and vibrantly. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, but it was also a land filled with giants, Which is why that first generation had turned away and esteemed the risk too high, the cost too costly, because it was a land not just of blessing, but of struggles. Ahead of them were both blessings and challenge, things they longed for and things they were afraid of. So Joshua made a call. They took three days there on the banks of the uh, Jordan River, and he said, consecrate yourselves. Now we're going to talk about what this means for us, but I want to dig more into this text because as I got into this, man, I, I was actually planning on preaching a different text. And the more I got into this passage, the more I really just felt like God was saying, sit here, man, unpack this. Cause I think there's a lot of richness here for us. And so I want to unpack what's going on in, in Joshua three and then make some applications. So the first thing Joshua says to the people of Israel, which is interesting is, Hey man, we're going to be going into the promised land but it's really important that we go in the right way. You're going to follow the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is going to go ahead of you. And the Ark of the Covenant needs to have um, at least 2,000 cubits of space. And it's really interesting. He says, why? He says, so that you will know the way to go. You'll follow it. It'll lead the way. Uh, but you need to keep at a distance. Now, remember, we're talking about a nation here. We're talking about a lot of people traveling, right? So by keeping 2,000 cubits, which was essential, essentially a, a half mile, it allowed everybody in the group to keep their eyes on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the goal wasn't simply to follow the person in front of you. The goal wasn't simply to, um, you know, march in a single... Every, everybody was called to keep their eyes on the Ark of the Covenant. And so there was a distance place that allowed them to do that and then they would follow it. Now, what is this Ark of the Covenant, right? Well, all of you, all of you obviously know, if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know exactly what it is. It's this really cool box that if you touch it, your face will melt off, right? Um, which isn't really that far from the truth, but, but um, it was a holy box. I mean, that's essentially what it was in the Old Testament. God um, asked them or commanded them to create this box. It was a holy box filled with holy things. So, so what kind of things were in this box? Well, the Ten Commandments. Right? So when Moses went up to the mountain, when when, when the Israelites were led out of Egypt and they came to Mount Sinai, um, God proposed a deal. <laughs> and Moses said, Hey, you guys, God wants to know if we're interested, right? If we want to be his peculiar people, if we want to be his chosen people, then he's going to give us a bunch of laws. And if we keep them, we'll be blessed. And if we break them, we'll be cursed. What do you think? And everybody's like, Yeah, we're in. He's like, all right. So he goes up to the top of the mountain, and, and God actually cuts two pieces of tablets of stone, and there are 10 words written on those, those tablets, 10 Hebrew words, and they are our 10 commandments written by the very finger of God. And when Moses comes down from the mountain with these, with these 10 commandments, he finds that the nation of Israel had already broken the first one. You shall have no other God before me. They had melted down all their gold and made a, 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 a golden calf, and they were down there worshiping it and saying, thank you for delivering us from the nation of Egypt right? Moses is like blown, like you got, and he smashes the tablets on the ground. Obviously symbolic of, of their immediate inability to, compete, complete, uh, to obey the holy law of God. They couldn't keep their end of the bargain, so they were under a curse. Now, God had Moses later make two more tablets, right? And those tablets were in the, the ark, and tradition tells us the broken tablets were in there too, Okay. The other thing that was in there was the, uh, Aaron's budding rod. Uh, it was a rod that he carried around. Now, Aaron was Moses' buddy. And uh, when, when Moses was delivering the nation of, of Israel from Egypt, Aaron was with him. And that rod was used to bring some of the, some of the plagues on the nation of Egypt. It was used uh, in different settings. Um, but when Aaron and Moses were challenged in their authority, the, the, the men of Israel rose up against them at some point and said, who are you guys to rule us? Who are you guys to have authority over us? Who are you? We're all the people of God. Why do you get to lead us? We're all on equal standing. And, um, and so they, they said, all right, tell you what, 12 tribes, 12 leaders of the 12 tribes, bring your rods, your staffs. They all carried them around. We'll put them all in this room overnight, and, and uh, we'll let God show us who's supposed to be the rightful authority. And overnight, Aaron's rod butted right? A dead rod, a dead piece of wood came back to life. And it didn't just bud, it said that it actually bore fruit. So it like turned into a little tree, right? It actually grew the leaves and the fruit and it had almond blossoms, I mean, overnight, right? So it was very clear what God was saying was Aaron is, Aaron and Moses are my appointed leaders, right? I have anointed them for leadership and you are to listen to them and follow them. The third thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant was a a golden jar that was filled with manna. Now, manna is a Hebrew word that means, what is it? Okay, because uh, it was God's way of feeding them on their wilderness journey. So while they were traveling through the desert at night, this, this manna would sprinkle down from heaven, and it was like little pieces of bread, and they would collect it, and they would put it all in this common storage bin, and everybody had as much as they needed. It fed them, and uh, it was wonderful and, and nutritious, and, and, and you had to eat it all because the next day it spoiled right? God said, don't keep any back because if you try to keep it for the next day, it's, it's going to be full of worms. And it was. They had to recollect it every single day. God provided it. They collected it, except on the Sabbath. Uh, on the Sabbath, on, the, on Saturday, um, God miraculously allowed it to last 48 hours. So they would collect it on, on Friday morning, and it would be good for 48 hours, and then it would spoil, okay? So there was a little jar of manna inside uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant itself was this box that was um, ornately designed and covered with gold, indicating that it was of great value. It was something to be revered and um, uh, honored. And on the top, there was a lid. And on that lid were two cherubim that were facing one another. They were covering their faces with their wings and and covering the, the, the seat with their wings, indicating it was a place of great holiness, a place of great honor. A great place of great weightiness, and, um, and and once a year, when they would make um, the the sacrifice of the um, sacrificial lamb that was slain, the atonement lamb that was slain for the nation, they would they would bring the blood of that lamb into the temple where the ark that was kept, and they would sprinkle that blood on the top between the cherubim, and that seat was called the mercy seat. Or the seat of propitiation, or the seat of satisfaction. It was the place where God's justice and God's mercy met. God basically said, I will forgive your sins. You bring the sacrifice, you sprinkle the blood on this mercy seat, and from that I will extend mercy and um, propitiation. So God's judgment was satisfied and his mercy was extended. All right, so this is what they were supposed to follow right? Let's get that on our minds. There's, this is this Ark of the Covenant, this revered box, this box that had so much history and so much meaning was to go ahead of them and they were to follow it. And it would set their direction. It would set their pace. It would set um, uh, their agenda, basically. All right. Now, listen, this is what I make some applications. We are the chosen people of God. Let's start there. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're the chosen people of God. I'm not saying this arrogantly. I'm not saying this. I'm just saying that's the way it works. When you believe in Jesus. You are covered in his righteousness. You are adopted into his family. You are made a member of his body. You are built into the temple of the living God, right? Uh, Not because of your birth, not because you have any right according to your heritage, not because you've performed any good works, not because you've earned it, but purely by the grace of God. When you believe in Jesus, you are made part of the people of God, the church, the living temple of God. We are the chosen people of God, and we are following the ark, because the ark is Jesus. Jesus is the true and better ark of the covenant. One of the things that's really beautiful about the Old Testament when you read it is that woven into the historical um, narratives of the Old Testament, God, God builds in these beautiful foreshadowings of his story. Right? So God obviously designed the ark of the covenant. God knew what was going to be put into the ark of the covenant, and he knew that it would all point to Jesus. And that, in fact, by following the ark, he would be foreshadowing the fact that we follow Jesus. I mean, think about it, you guys. The fact that the law is in the ark, inside this beautiful box is the law. It represents the fact that Jesus himself never broke the law. That he was perfectly worthy. That he measured up in all ways. that, That he who knew no sin, right, became our savior. But the fact that the broken tablet of the law was also inside the ark of the covenant indicates that this Holy One would Himself become the embodiment of our rebellion. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He who knew no sin became sin for us. On the cross, He became the embodiment of our rebellion against God. And, and when He died, He didn't die His death, He died our death. When He suffered under the wrath of God, it wasn't because He was a sinner. it's because we are. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What a beautiful image in that ark as we see both the fulfillment of the law and the broken nature of that law embedded into the beautiful person of Christ as he becomes our substitute, taking our place. Jesus is the true and better law. Aaron's rod, of course, also indicates um, that Jesus is, uh, it points to Jesus, right? He is the true and better leader. Right, He is the anointed of God, the Christ. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. He is the king, the true king and deliverer. And he's the only rod that would bud. I mean, Jesus is unique among all of humanity. Who else has come back from the dead? Who else went from being a dead stick to being a fruit-giving tree? Jesus went from life to death back to life again. He is the true and better rod. He was also the manna the bread from heaven. But unlike the bread of earth, which satisfies temporarily, he was the true bread. Jesus said, um, I am the true bread, meaning that he himself is what satisfies our deepest yearnings and desires, right? We try to feed ourselves all kinds of stuff, try to feed ourselves with, with uh, success. We try to feed ourselves with, with money. We try to see, feed ourselves with fame. We try to feed ourselves with the approval of people. We have these deep hungers and desires that we're trying to feed with all these things, and they don't satisfy because the hunger was never designed to be satisfied in our achievement or our ability or our accomplishment. It was designed to be satisfied in Him, the true bread, That that his love, his approval, his presence feeds us in a way that our performance never could. He is the true manna, the bread of life. In addition to that, he is the true and better ark. I mean, the, the box itself, the mercy seat, right? The mercy seat is the place where God's judgment and God's mercy met. What a beautiful foreshadowing of the cross. He was the true and better sacrificial lamb. He's the one that died on the cross in our place. It was his blood that brings satisfaction, mercy to the sinner, satisfaction to God's judgment, mercy to those who deserved that judgment. He was the true and better mercy seat where God's wrath is fully satisfied and his mercy is unconditionally extended. You guys, the ark is the gospel. The message of who Jesus is and what he's done. They were to follow the ark in the same way that we are to follow the gospel. And you guys, just like the ark, it's moving. The gospel never stands still. It's advancing. The Lord will do wonders among you. Now, maybe right now you're a little bit like the Israelites who were standing on the bank of the Jordan. And the Israelites who were standing on the bank of the Jordan believed in God. They believed he was miraculous and powerful and glorious and able to do anything. They just weren't confident he would do it for them, they were a little nervous. We we know God can. We're just not sure he will for me. I know God is able. I'm just not sure he will for me. How do I know that if I throw everything at his feet, he's trustworthy? How do I know he's going to protect me from the giants in the land? How do I know he's going to lead me into the fullness of a land flowing with milk and honey, a fullness of life and joy and vibrancy and purpose? Can I really trust him to lead me? You guys, some of you in your walk with God have settled. Some of you have stopped asking for big things. And you've become afraid to trust Him. So you learn to ask for small things. You learn to lower your expectations. You learn to come to the God of audacious promises with tiny requests. Because you're standing on the bank of the Jordan. And you're not sure the Lord of all the earth cares about you. So what was the answer for the Israelites? I want you to take a look at verses 8 through 11 with me. Let's get back in the text because Joshua knows what's going on in the, people of the heart of the people. And, uh, and this is what he says to them to inspire them to courage, to inspire them to, to actually um, trust and, and take this risk, right? Starting in verse 8... Joshua, and as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. So Joshua was like, hey, you guys, I know, you're, I know you're having a little bit of a time trusting right now, Right? The previous generation had a really hard time too, and we know what happened to them. (laughs) They ended up not even crossing over, right? So let me just inspire you a little bit. How do you know that God will do wonders? How do you know that God's going to defeat your giants? How do you know that God is going to bring you into an experience of a land flowing with milk and honey? How do you know? He says, God's going to do a wonder to show you the ark priests, you listening to me. He's like, hey, you guys, one's carrying the ark. You, you listen, you're going to walk out into the middle of the river and you're going to stand there. And I'm sure they were like, what? You sure, Josh? I mean, that's the river. That's actually it. Okay. The Jordan River, don't think of a dry riverbed. Don't think of a quiet little stream. It was a raging river, especially at this time. We're told that this was during the time of the harvest right after the rainy season. It had already overspilled its banks. It was was large and deep and raging. (laughs) And Joshua was like, I'm going to give you a sign. They're going to walk out there and they're going to stand there. And it's going to inspire you because they're going to stop the water. They're going to stop the water. So they did. The priests carrying the the Ark of the Covenant. It says a little bit farther down in the passage, they came up and and, and typical. I mean, what a lesson here, right? God never parts the waters until you need to step in, right? Don't ask God to part the waters when you're 10 miles away just for your comfort. He's not going to do it. He asks you simply to step forward in faith. And as they go to step into the water, the water parts. And God stops the water. And they actually go stand right in the middle of the river with the ark and the entire nation passes through. And, and then one of the leaders of each of the 12 tribes goes back into the dry riverbed and grabs a rock. And they, they bring it over to the Canaanite side, the, the land of Israel side, the Palestinian side. And they, and they set all these rocks down and they build what's called an Ebenezer. An Ebenezer is a reminder, a pillar that is designed to remind. And then every time they would pass by that way again, they'd be like, hey, you guys remember when God brought us through the water? Do you remember that when I pulled that rock out of that riverbed? Right? And then they would tell their children, I did that. And their grandchildren, your grandfather did that. And your grandchildren's grandchildren. And every time each generation would walk by, they'd be reminded that God brought them through on dry ground how does that apply to us? Right? That's great. God took him through a river. I've never seen it personally. Even if I had, I'm fairly confident I wouldn't find the Ebenezer, right? Those rocks are probably still there somewhere, but, but who knows, right? So how does that speak to me? All right. Remember the ark is Jesus, right? Water is symbolic of death. And we know that every time we baptize somebody, we, we realize that symbolism, right? You take somebody and you dip them into the water, symbolizing the fact that they are being united with Jesus and his death. And, and you take them up out of the water, it symbolizes that they are being born into a new identity, their new identity in Jesus right? Death is symbolic, or water is symbolic of death. And and this isn't just in the Bible. This is pretty universal, right? Most, in fact, pretty much every culture has stories in which passing over water symbolizes the passing from life to death, right? Greek mythology, the river Styx is the pathway to Hades, right? Rivers are, passing over rivers are symbolic of passing from life to death. See, what's beautiful here is that the ark doesn't simply pass into the water. It passes through it from life to death, back to life. Jesus died and rose again. You want to know what our Ebenezer is? It's the empty tomb. We don't look back to the river of Jordan to bolster our faith. We look back to the empty tomb. God has performed a wonder. Jesus was raised from the dead. You want to know if God can defeat your giants? Jesus was raised from the dead. You want to know if you, if you can trust him to bring you into a life of fullness and joy, a life of, of flowing with milk and honey? Jesus was raised from the dead. There is no greater sign God could give than that God himself became man, was immersed in our rebellion against God, died under the weight of our sin, bore our shame, bore our guilt, and came out victorious on the other side a leader who could not be defeated, who would bring in a new kingdom, who would redeem and restore all of creation. The enemy you fear has already been defeated. That problem you face that seems insurmountable, the victory has already been won. That blessing that you've been longing for, it's already been given. Because in Christ, you've been given all things. In Christ, you've been given every blessing in heavenly places. That blessing you long for, the life flowing with milk and honey, the way has been opened and the price has been paid. And the sign The sign that we can trust this God, the Lord of the earth, is the empty tomb. The ark passed through the water and came through the other side. All right, now listen to this verse again, Joshua 3, 5. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you consecrate yourselves. Let me ask you something. Are you ready? Are you ready? (laughs) On the day of wonders, are you ready? On the day of the outpouring of power, are you ready? On the day that God says, I am here to shake this place up, to bring something good, to, to accelerate the work of my son in this place, in this time, are you ready? Are you going to be like the Israelites who pushed forward in faith? Or the Israelites who held back in fear and self protection and unbelief? Because the gospel's moving either way. The only difference is where you're going to end up standing. You guys, it is time for us to consecrate ourselves, it is time for us to get ready. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among us. So what does it mean for us to consecrate ourselves? We've been praying that the building will be consecrated, set apart, but what does it mean for us to, to consecrate ourselves, right? How do we do that? How do we dedicate ourselves to this sacred service? How do we dedicate ourselves to this sacred following? That's what we're going to be digging into over the next five weeks. And here's what I want you to catch up front. Consecrating yourself is not something you do for God. Consecrating yourself doesn't mean fixing your problems. Consecrating yourself doesn't mean f- changing your heart. Because I don't know if you figured this out yet. You're actually powerless to do that. You can't. Consecrating yourself isn't doing something for God. Consecrating yourself is responding to what God has done for you. You want to know how you consecrate your heart? You can't perform the changes you need to make, but you can fill your vision with the love of God to the point that you actually start responding to that love, and that will change you. We consecrate ourselves by responding. By, by putting the ark half mile out front and fixing our eyes, by putting the gospel out in front of us and fixing our eyes on it, so much so that we actually start responding to it. It means we stop just going through the motions. It means we stop just going to the right place, doing the right things, saying the right words. It means that we get over all of our religious effort, our our, our attempts to impress ourselves and our neighbors. We get over our, our need to have an image, our need to, to think highly of ourselves. We humble ourselves. We become aware of our deep, deep need for grace. And we fill our vision with the outpouring of that grace in the person and the work of Jesus. We respond. We allow ourselves to be so loved by God that it reawakens within our hearts a love for Him. We fill our vision with the wonder of grace that a holy God, the Lord of all the earth, loved us enough to step outside of his glory, to step outside of his comfort, to become one of us, to become so identified with our sin, so identified with our brokenness, that he could in fact die bearing the weight of the rejection we deserved. That we might enter into the resurrection and be made new. We respond. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about ways you can fill your vision Practical ways that you can lead your heart to respond to the love of God. And in responding, find true and beautiful consecration. Not legalism. Not, not hopeless self-effort. Not one more list of to-dos that I'm just going to do for God because I'm going to fix myself for God. We're going to be talking about how we can genuinely respond to God. And in that response, be transformed. But I can tell you where it starts this morning. It starts with prayer. Genuine consecration always starts with prayer. Recently, I called our church into a season of fasting and prayer. Many of you saw my post on the city. The city is our online communication tool. Uh, if you're not on it, just go to Connection Point. We'll get you hooked up. We'll help you be connected uh, to this this way of communicating. But I posted a video and and. Um, I would encourage you, get on there, right? Some of you are like, Steve, I'm already tired of listening to you. That's fine. Don't listen to the video. Uh, I'm going to tell you what's in it. I'm calling us to a season of prayer and fasting. And then I'm asking you in the comments section uh, to simply tell us how you're going to fast. How you are going to be involved? Now, when I talk about fasting, listen to me. I'm not talking about not eating, right? That's how most people think of fasting is, is completely fasting from food. What I'm talking about is, is fasting from something that's going to cause you discomfort. It might be a meal. It, it, it might be a certain kind of food, but it's going to cause you discomfort. And when you feel that discomfort, it's going to prompt you to pray. And, and so you're committing to fast in a way that it's going to cause regular discomfort in your life so that when you feel that discomfort, it prompts you to pray. Comfortable people don't pray. You notice that? We pray when we feel the need. And, and this is a way of, of creating a regular need. And, and so some people got on there and, and um, they're fasting from different things. Like we, we had, you know, and, and you can read through the list, right? We got, we got some people um, fasting from, from listening to the radio on their morning commute, right? It's a great thing. So they get in the car and they go to turn on sports radio and, and oh, man, all right. Like I really wanted to hear what was going on. I guess I'll pray. Right? So they take their, their commute time for prayer. It causes a, a level of discomfort that then prompts them to pray. Some people are really brave. Like some people are giving up coffee. I'm, I admire you. I'm really impressed by you, right? It's like every morning when you go to drink the nectar of life, every morning when, <laughs> when you feel like a dust bowl of dry bones and you need, and, and you're like, oh, no, I can't. So you pray. I admire you. Some of you are even more brave. Some of you are fasting from social media, right? We're so addicted to our social media. So every time you get that impulse to pull out your phone and just mindlessly scroll through to find out, uh, what, what's the latest news? How many likes do I have? How many followers do I have? Who said something stupid today? Every time you go to pull it out, you're like, oh, I guess I'll pray. So here's the thing, you guys it has to cause discomfort to prompt you. And every time it causes discomfort, you're going to go one of two ways. You're either going to grumble or you're going to pray. Because you can't grumble and pray at the same time. You ever notice that? Right? So you're either going to get uncomfortable and you're going to be, right? Which is me without coffee. Um, or you're going to pray. Right? So I'm not saying you, you need to make yourself or, pray about it. right? What should you fast from? Ask God. Here's a thought. Right, but, but pick something that's going to cause a, a regular source of discomfort that's going to regularly prompt you to pray. So I've called our church to a season of, of fasting and, and prayer because many of us long for God to work. We're in this season where, I mean, if you think about it, we're in this political, hyper-politicized season. Everybody is basically trying to promise you a land flowing with milk and honey. They just have different ways of getting you there. They have different promises to help you get there. And and, and when somebody threatens your plan, it creates anxiety and fear and anger. and, and, and You know what? We need to feast on the gospel. We need to feast on the genuine promise of the kingdom, God's kingdom, breaking in to renew our hope. right? We long for revival in our country, a season of renewed delight in love and righteousness, right? a taste of the flowing milk and honey instead of the fear and the anger and the anxiety and the mudslinging. We want this for our country. We, we want this for our city. We, we want this for our workplaces and our, our cul-de-sacs and our neighbors and our family and our friends. But you know where it starts? In our hearts. We're not praying for God to do something out there. We're praying for God to do something in here because it always begins with God's people. God's greatest work always begins where God has already given his greatest blessing. That's ground zero. And God's greatest blessing is to be found in the person and the work of Jesus. And we, as the people of Jesus, need to lead the way. We need to taste deeply of this grace, of this hope, and move boldly in this faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us that all things will be shaken, and he means that in a good way. that that the things that are taking up space and eating life are going to be shaken and fall away so that the things that are thriving and give life will have room to grow. All things will be shaken, but the shaking begins with the house of God. It begins with us. So let's start here. Let's pray that God will till the soil of our hearts. Can we do that? Can we pray that God will break up the, the, the hard clay that has formed in our souls, that insulates us from from hope, that we hope will protect us from fear, but in a sense just deadens us to the presence and the beauty and the work of Jesus? Can we pray that God will till the soil, break up the sod for His glory and our joy? That God will give us courage to face the giants in our life? Whatever they are. Without fear, anxiety, or anger, those things that seem too big for us to overcome, those things that seem so threatening and so full of animosity and so big. We pray, just pray, that we'll have courage to face the giants. We pray that God will give us a true hope and a real faith to keep walking deeper into the land of milk and honey. You guys, listen to me. Some of you, you've been battling the same strongholds in your life for so long, you feel like it's hopeless. You've given up on God. So you've walked away, man. You've pulled back into the desert wandering, and you wonder why your life is parched and empty. You know, there are some strongholds that don't come down but by the miraculous work of God. After Israel passed into the land of Canaan, they go through the Jordan River. The first city they come to is Jericho. It's this giant, imposing, walled city. They have no ability to breach the walls. Full of warriors. It's a terrifying sight. And God's like, I've got a great idea. I want you to go get Caleb. Caleb. The great warrior and all the men of valor, and tell them to sit down because we're calling out the marching band. Right? Grab the marching band and send them to war. Really? Yep. Yep. Get them all. Have them march seven times around the city. Right? Get the percussions going. Right? Get the strings going. Little mariachi. You know, people up on the walls, dancing, making fun of them. It's all good. It's all good. When you get around to the seventh time, you let the horn section loose. A little ska, right? You bring some serious horn section, and those walls come tumbling down. It's ridiculous. Who ever heard of a battle plan like that? It's idiotic. Why would God send out the marching band against a walled city? Because no one could take credit for the victory but God. Nobody can stand there and say, we did this. There are things in your life that God will let stand until you let him bring in the marching band. There are strongholds, there are battles, there are difficulties in your life. But God will let stand until his work is accomplished through it. His will is worked through it. God God is the giver of good gifts. The Lord of the heavens and the earth gave you his son. Remember the Ebenezer, the empty tomb. He's already given you Jesus. How will he not with him give you all things? How can you not follow him into battle? And if there are areas in your life against which you have been struggling, will you have the courage to have patience? Maybe that's where you begin praying. God, will you give me the patience until you call the band in? Some of you in in your journey for for the land flowing with milk and honey, a life of vibrancy with God, you you ended up in a dry section or maybe a mountain section, a series of of trials that that sapped your energy or maybe a, a dry section where God felt distant and you decided to stop walking because obviously God had abandoned you. And so you keep going through the religious motions. You keep going through the the process, but the vibrancy, the life, and the joy are gone. Will you pray for the courage to get back on your feet and trust God again? Will you pray that you will be able to hear the beckoning voice of your Savior follow me, even if it's through a desert, even if it's over the mountains? God's blessings are not always easy, but they are always good. God's path is not always level. It is not always efficient, but it is always effective. Will you trust? How about beginning by prayer? You're like, dude, I can't climb that mountain. I'm not asking you to. Let's just pray. Will you, Lord, will you you give me the ability to take the next step? Will you give me the ability to stand up? Will you give me the ability to hope again, God? Will you give me the ability to have a vision of a future that is free from this bondage, or, or where I'm not controlled by fear or by this sin or whatever it is? Will you listen? Will you take the first step of consecration this morning to pray? You're like Steve, I'm not very good at prayer. You talk a lot about prayer. You know how you learn how to pray? You pray. The only solution for adult prayer life is prayer. you got to pray your way into praying. You know that? You're like, it's just awkward, man. Yeah. When I became a believer at 17, I had no idea how to approach an intimate God, a glorious God who loved me. It was such a foreign idea to me. And I remember my first prayer. I didn't even know how to approach him. And I'm like, this is weird. I'm like, Lordy, Lordy, Lordy. I'm seriously. That's how I started my prayer. (laughs) And immediately I'm like, I guess that was dumb, right? I mean, it's just how do you get through the awkwardness? You go through the awkwardness pray. You pray your way into prayer. You're like, Steve, I don't even know if I want to pray. Well, then pray about that. Lord, will you increase my desire to pray? Will you awaken my heart to the joy of entering your presence, the Lord of all the earth, the giver of all good gifts? Will you reawaken my heart to the reality of the beauty of prayer? So you're like, Steve, I I hear you, man, but I'm not sure I even want consecration. There are things in my life that I'm afraid to give up. There are ways that I know God's going to invade my space, invade my life. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. Well, pray about that. Pray, God, will you give me a desire to be consecrated? Right? Maybe you don't pray for consecration. Maybe you just pray for the desire for consecration. You, You start where you are. And you pray. God honors prayer. Humble yourself and pray. Pray your way into wanting the blessings of God. Pray your way into hating your sin. Pray your way into wanting to pray. Pray your way into fasting. Just ask. I'm going to encourage you over the next week. I want you in, you guys. I want you in. If you come here this morning, you're like, that was an entertaining sermon. That was interesting. That was nice. And then you go and you're like, all right, I'll come back next week. You missed it. Like I'm giving you homework, okay? Like for real. This week, I want you praying every day. I want you to set aside a time to pray. Like maybe it's your morning commute. Maybe it's when you get up early in the morning and no one else is up. Maybe it's late at night when everyone's gone to bed. And Maybe for some of you it's the shower because that's the only time little hands aren't grabbing you. I don't know. You, You figure it out. But set aside a time every day that triggers prayer, right? And Pray. And pray. Over the last month, God has really been weighing this on my heart. We stand on the edge of a new season. And God is prepared to do wonders among us. the God who raised Jesus from the dead is here and he is active and he is ready to do wonders among us. Because God loves to make much of the work of his son. And right now he is calling us to get ready. He is calling us to consecrate our hearts for the good and the holy and the hard work ahead of us. You guys, in your bulletin, there's a three-by-five card. Um, This is part of your homework. I want you to pull that out. If you can do it right now, I want you to do it right now. If not, I want you to do it later. But here's what I want you to do, and I'm going to ask you to be bold in doing it. I want you to write at least two things on that card. The first would be this. What giant in your life are you wanting God to remove? What giant, what problem, what stronghold, what difficulty, what giant in your life do you want God to take out? And what blessing do you want to experience? In this land of flowing with milk and honey, this beautiful kingdom of His Son, what joy, what delight, what bold request can you bring to your loving Father who loves to bless you as His child? I gonna tell you up front, it doesn't mean God's going to answer your request exactly like you ask it. <laughs> That's not the way he works. He will answer your request. He may give you what you don't expect in a way you don't expect it. But I guarantee at the end of the day, you'll look back and go, holy cow, God answered that prayer. What giant are you facing? What blessing are you longing to experience? Be bold. Be bold. Now, if you're willing, take the next step and pray not just for yourself, but for our church. What giant would you like to see God take out for our church as we move forward on mission in this community to share the love of God? And what blessing would you like to see us experience as as His people, as His body? But write these things down. It's important that you write them down and that you keep it with you as a reminder. Many good intentions fail through lack of execution. So let's take the step and actually help ourselves, right? Let's write it down and commit to praying. God will do wonders. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good and holy and loving, powerful, holy, God that you reside in inapproachable splendor and glory and yet you made a way through the river that we might come into your presence your son entered into the weight of our shame and our guilt the weight of our debt paid it fully Came out the other side and left for us a dry river bed to pass from death to life. Man, you are an incredibly good and gracious God. Move our hearts to genuine worship, move our hearts to genuine boldness, move our hearts to genuine love. Fill our vision with that grace that we might be undone and remade in the image of your Son. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.